I don't know what there was to get upset about. I just said nice ass. Uh-huh. Well, and he got like all well. That's kind of a you don't. Well, I the, mean, he, the donkey. He was standing next to a. Oh, I don't know what to call it. Is it a oh. donkey? Is it an ass? I you know. Well, were the, you talking about the donkey? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. wait. Hold on a second. Oh, wait. We're rolling. Well, then let's roll. I'm Rich, and I'm Mark, and we are two, two guys, guys on Block, Block Island. Island. What shall we do? All right, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Two Guys on Block Island. Rich, today, I think we're going to have a scintillating conversation. With, I'm excited. With our guest. Uh, our, our guest today is a gentleman who is uh, known to be a person who is not afraid to speak his mind about issues here on the island. We respect that. Which not only do we respect, we encourage and we appreciate it, and it makes for a great interview yeah you know yeah. so uh without further ado ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the podcast doc willis hello doc good afternoon how are you i feel very good today. it's a beautiful day today it, it is sure is we're, re- we're recording by the way this is january and it is like 55 degrees out there and just a gorgeous uh global warming day i will you know? i'll take it i'll take it for now you oh, know? by the way i just fed my two uh, jackasses two, <laughs> two donkeys before i came here <laughs> And uh, probably two of the smartest animals you'll ever find. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I hear. That's it. That's what I hear. So, Doc, uh, the question we usually ask all of our guests is, uh, when did you first come to Block Island? How did you discover Block Island? Uh, When was that? Well, it's an interesting story because... God, I hope so. (laughs) Way back when I was just a little kid, my grandfather actually had a cousin who was in the fish business out here on Block Island. Okay. His name was Hiram Willis. And oh. he had a, a, a wholesale fish market down where Ballads is on the dock. He wasn't a fisherman. He was a a wholesale retail um, fishing fishing out, outlet for some type. And he would ship fish all over the place, mostly to New York City. In those days... They had uh, they had uh, boats that had uh, open bottoms where they could have live live tanks that they would bring down to Fish's, uh, Fulton's Fish Market. But I remember them talking about Black Island, and, and to me, it was some place was so far away it would make much difference to yeah. me. But uh, he was a, he was a cousin of my grandfather's, and I still have <clears throat> some of the paperwork letters going back and forth, which I found years later when I said Black Island. And I really didn't know much about Block Island. Uh, I knew we had a Block Island fish market down in, in Bridgeport, which is where we got most of our fish. So years later, um, Franklin Renz, who was, the f- who was the former owner of the power company, <clears throat> he actually sold it to uh, Cliff McGinnis. He was a patient of mine. And it was in 1972, I believe, uh, he came to me and he said, listen, he says, <clears throat> uh, I, I, have the, I own the power company out in Block Island. And uh, he said, uh, I have a house out in Block Island. And I said, you know, I hear about it, but I really don't know much about Block Island. And he said, well, it's a, it's a very cold winter. He says, right now I have a problem on Block Island. Everybody is sick and there's no doctor out there this winter. He said, so if you have a day off, like, is it tomorrow your day off? And it was a Tuesday. I said, yeah. He said, well, could you do me a favor? Can I fly you out to Block Island? And see if you could treat some of the people that are out there, because one in particular is working on a diesel engine right now. He's he's my best diesel mechanic, and he said <clears throat> he's he's very sick. They have one engine running, 
they have no backup engine. If he doesn't get this engine fixed uh, and the power goes out, he says the island's going to freeze up completely. So he says, if you, if I could take you out there, if you could treat them as best you can, and we can keep everything going. I said, reluctantly, I said, yeah, all right. I says, you know, it's actually, it was January 26th or 27th, 1972, in that area. We we went up to Oxford, got in his plane, at a twin-engine plane. He was the pilot. And it was it was a bitter cold day, uh, and it was like it, like it was out here, and snow. And he cranked over the first engine, and I was a little hesitant about going. <laughs> <laughs> the first engine it I sputtered, <laughs> it didn't, it wouldn't start. And, and I can looked. I tell you the exact same thing happened to me this morning in Westerly? <laughs> Is that right? I'm not even kidding. I was the only one on the plane. And uh, the, the the pilot started the right, the left engine brrr, started right up, and then the right engine. Brrr, 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 brrr. Yeah, you want to get I, out. You want to get out. I was by like, that time. Uh, yeah. anyway, sorry. So I looked out the uh, the window and at the exhaust, and I see a bunch of sawdust and, and stuff come flying out of the exhaust, and a mouse a mouse comes flying out of the exhaust. No, no. And the engine started, and I said, "We're going to fly to Block Island out on the ocean." And a mouse just jumped out of the engine, and the engine's running. So, yeah. uh, Frank said, "As long as it's running, there's no more mouse, mouse in the engine. Don't worry about it." So, <laughs> we got to Block Island, and as we flew in over Block Island, he, Frank, goes, "Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. The salt pond was completely frozen over." Ah. And he said, "He said I've been here for a number of years. I've never seen it like this." So we landed, and we went. Uh, uh, we first went down for coffee down to the number one cafe. Oh, yeah. And we walked in there. Well, Franklin wasn't really well-liked like anybody owning the power company. Like Cliff McGinnis wasn't really well-liked because because they had to collect the bills for your electricity. And so we walked in there, and I got the stare from, I won't mention any names, but most of them are not even gone now anyway. But we got the stare, like, who is this guy? And what is he doing out here in the dead of winter on the worst day of of, of the winter? And uh, <clears throat> I could see him snickering and sputtering and looking at it. And, and I said to Franklin, are we welcome over here? He says, well, we're just going to get a cup of coffee and we'll be out of here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, uh, an Didn't exactly gen- answer the question. Yeah. Yeah, an old gentleman came up to me, snuggled up to me, and he said, uh, by the way, what's your name? I said, John Willis. He says, I, I heard that. I heard that. He says, uh, my mother, my family name was Willis. It was Sherm Dodge. And he be- took a liking to me. That was Willis's father. And he took a liking to me and only because of my name. He says, you got to be related to me somehow. That's all I know is that the guy down here that was Hiram Willis, the fish market. That's all I know about. He says, well, I can barely remember Hiram. And uh, he mm-hmm. said, he said he didn't have any family out here. I says, no, his family was back. Actually, it was in, in Connecticut. Anyway, uh, we went to the power company and, uh, here was an old, wasn't old, he was in his 50s, covered with grease, up on top of a, 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 a Morse Fairbanks engine, the diesel engine at the power company. And he was sweating, and, he was, and it was cold in there. And uh, Franklin introduced me to him, Merrill Slate. <clears throat> Merrill was probably one of the best diesel engine mechanics out here. He kept the power company going for, I think, 50 years. I think uh, it was for years and years and years. And uh, anyway, 
I took a look at him and I said, uh, hey, old man, you don't look too good. He says, I don't feel too good. He said, but I got to get this engine running before I do anything else. He says, if, if I don't get this engine going tonight, this island could freeze up completely. So I gave him, I, I cleaned out my medical bag with antibiotics. Every shot I had, he was, I had 104 temperature. Oh. I said, you got to go home. He says, I'm not going home until I get the engine running. I said, when's that? He said, maybe midnight tonight. Yeah. I said, if you're, if you're still alive. So <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't quit. He didn't quit. Hell of a bedside manner. You got. As we said, Doc was not a sugar coater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We treated him. And then once they found out that, that there was a doctor on the island, we, we had people lining up at the power company that were sick. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're everybody's best friend. There was no doctor out here for, I think, for weeks at that time, which wasn't unusual back then. Right. Especially right. during the wintertime. There was nothing to do for a doctor. Right. He couldn't make a living. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> we treated as many people <clears throat> as we could. And I remember going to a house <clears throat> that uh, the old fellow was laying on a couch. And he worked for the power company, too. Uh, he was the controller back at that time. I forget what his name was. And it was it was at a house right down there by <clears throat> on a corner of Connecticut and, uh, uh, let's see, Connecticut and Old Town Road. And I walked in, <clears throat> and we walked in. It was cold. He's laying on blankets on top of him, a little kerosene heater sitting next to him. This is 1972. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had a bunch of stuff. I gave him some shots, had some pills for him. I, I said, Let me, I got to get some water. So I walked into the kitchen. The kitchen sink was frozen solid with, with dirty dishes. And the only heat was this little kerosene heater. That's how people survived out here back in those days. That wasn't really that long ago. No, it wasn't. That's not like in the 60s or 50s or the 40s. That no. was the 70s. Yeah. Anyway, we did the best we could, <clears throat> and we flew out of here, and that's how I was acquainted with Block Island. However, on the way out of here, as the plane took off from right out here, I said to Franklin, why in the world would anybody in their right mind ever want to live in this godforsaken, <laughs> miserable, rotten place? And he said, it'll grow on you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Next summer, uh, I ventured out again in a boat. And I've been coming here ever since. Yeah. And I left the boat at Champlin's. Uh, I would leave it there all, all summer long. My father, my mother and my father were retired. They would come up during the week. I would come on the weekends. And eventually, 1982, I bought a house. So I've had a house out here for over 40 years. And then I uh, I wanted to, I, I, began, I, I fell in love with Block Island. Not the first time, but when right. I came back <laughs> yeah. the second time. <laughs> yeah. When we came into the inlet of the Great Salt Pond, you could smell the Rosa Ragusa. We were in, we were in zero fog. I didn't know where I was. I didn't have a radar. I had a, uh, a depth finder. <clears throat> and I had a compass, but you could smell the road. You could smell the land and the fog. Wow. I smelled my way into the inlet. Amazing. Amazing. And that's that's how it started. And then I never left. I bought the house. I bought more property because I began to decide that maybe I, I might want to uh, invest out here a little bit. My partners were buying a shopping center. He said, you got to come with us. I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to buy a, 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 a house in Block Island. He said, are you crazy? <laughs> you got <laughs> yeah. to go yeah. by boat. You got to yeah. fly. How are you going to get there? And actually, I wasn't crazy because- Smart move. My partners, are, some of them were already gone, but I, I did so so far better than them financially. Oh, yeah. Some of them were still working up to a few years ago. I retired 22 years ago. Yep. With rental houses on Block Island. Yeah. Wow. And and we all know where shopping centers are going with the internet. Yeah. yeah. Half of them are vacant yeah. right yeah. now, you know? And so basically, uh, it was it was uh, becoming a 
going from a physician with some fine hands to rough hands, electrician, plumber, carpenter. I, I did everything myself. Uh, I did have a few friends out here, but like you all know, uh, I'm not sure it's like that now, but I, I think it's not almost like that. You could get very, very good carpenters out here between 10 and 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so it took, you, it took you a year to build a house. Yeah. When it should take two or three months. Which can vary slightly from their bill on their hours. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so where was your first house that you bought? The first house I bought, it was an interesting situation. I came out here <clears throat> in a Thanksgiving weekend uh, after a, a summer boating and through the 70s, and it was 1982. And I went to, um, I think it was Sullivan Real Estate. I think it was Jack Gray, which you, you probably wouldn't remember Jack No, I, Gray. I do. I remember, remember him. Yeah. Jack? Yep. Jack Gray was the first warden out here. Uh, he was uh, a Coast Guardsman, and he originally married Catherine Champlin. Then he married Estes, and he got involved with, with her. And uh, and she loved him. He, he, he was her boy. And um, <clears throat> he got into the real estate business. I liked him. I liked him. He, he was a fine gentleman. But I walked in, and he looked at me, and he said, could I help you? I said, you know, I'm looking around. Just I may want to buy something out here. <clears throat> he said, um, all right. Uh, I said, uh, anybody can give me a ride around and show me something? He said, no, we don't really have that availability, but I can show you some pictures. And you can walk around to some of the places there within walking distance. So I said, well... <clears throat> All right, but I, I, I thought maybe somebody could, you know, I thought real estate, you'd show me around. <laughs> no, no, we don't, we don't do that out here right now this time of year. We have to figure out if we like you first and then maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, he found Too bad out, he wasn't sick. Yeah. Well, yeah. He found out that he liked me when I said, I just recently sold a piece of property. I got some cash. Where do you want to go? All of a sudden, he liked <laughs> you a lot you better. Go? I yeah. got things I can yeah. show you right now. You passed the, uh, you passed the tire <laughs> kicking test. You weren't just kicking tires. I bought a house from a 100-year-old woman, um, Maud Messer, up on on uh, West Side Road, just past Coast Guard Road, Champlin's Road, and up on the hill. And she was in a nursing home. And Jack said, I got a house to show you. It's not on the market yet, but she's the woman is in a coma. Her, her, her executor is her lawyer, who's a very good friend of mine. If you want to buy this house, you have to buy it right away. Because if she goes, if she dies, now we're getting involved in probate. It's going to be a look at it. Short story is that we closed in one week. Have you ever closed a piece of property in one week? Nope. No. I said I need to have I need to have a title search. No, 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 no. This property was was Champlin's farm. I, it, he showed me the deed. It was written in pencil. <laughs> <laughs> she had owned it for seventy five years. Wow. He said you don't need a title. He says I got there and this is as clean as anything you're gonna ever find. I he came down to Connecticut. I gave him the cash and I owned. Maud Messer's house within four, four or five days. Wow. And uh, I began to scratch my head a little bit. However, that was 1982. Wow. So that's 40, Again, not even that long ago. 41 though. years ago. Wow. That's, wow. that's, that's, that's a while ago. Well, it's a little while. It, but, it, but it's not as long ago as it used to be. That's like true. When I was younger. <laughs> I know. Now, you know right. Like you did earlier, like, I saw this old guy. Well, he wasn't old. He was only 50. Yeah. You know? But at that time, he was old, you know, because you were younger. And. And at that point, um, I uh, I came out every weekend. I was still working, uh, and eventually, when I realized that that I did like block, I liked like everybody. No, I always said, "See, the people are a little bit different." No, it wasn't it wasn't the old islanders, the salt of the earth. No, 
It was the people that think that they were old islanders. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. still the problem. They think that they're <laughs> islanders, and they're not islanders. But what? They're not even close. I'm not a not. You know, you got to be born out here to be a real islander. But <clears throat> at that point in time, I, I could deal with the. Uh, I could deal with that. I just love the idea of the isolation. My listen. My phone rang twenty four seven for thirty five years as a family doctor. I couldn't wait to to do something different. If I had to do it again, I would have probably, I should have, we all should have done something different. I should have quit school at 16, come out to Block Island on, on uh, if I had a, if I had a rowboat out here and bought as much property as I could. So for all you kids listening, there's yeah. your advice. Get a rowboat, <laughs> buy property. And, and if there's kids listening, forget about college. <laughs> get into the real estate, get into something where you can flip some, make some money real quick and just keep doing it and you'd be so far better off. I went to medical school. It cost my family over $300,000. It took me a few years to, to get that all back. I never took any student loans, <clears throat> but it took a while to get that back, but I did make money. I still made more money in real estate than anything else. And and out here in Black Island is where, where I bought one house, bought two houses, rented them out, worked very hard, yeah. like, like you all do. And the right place at the right time. I mean, yeah, you're lucky right. to be introduced like you were, you know? And that's how I got the block out. Wow. Now let's back it up, though. Now, so where where were you born, and where are you from originally? Where'd you grow born, up? I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. <clears throat> I lived in Trumbull, Connecticut. Um, I went off to college in Omaha, Nebraska. I went to medical school in Omaha, Nebraska, only because I went to a private school, a Jesuit school at Fairfield University in Fairfield, Connecticut, Fairfield Prep, and from a Jesuit school there. I went to a Jesuit college only because my uncle was a doctor out in Iowa. And he encouraged me to come out to, to Creighton University, which is a Jesuit college, because he lived out there. And my mother said, gee, go with my brother because that might rub off on you as being a doctor. Okay. Well, it did. Yeah. I, he had a farm. He had a big farm in Iowa. A corn. He had cornfields. He had a thousand acres. And I worked with him in the summers and that's how i always wanted to be a little bit of a farmer and even today i'm a little bit of a farmer because of that yeah and then i went to college out there i went to medical school out there i was with catholic schools from high school college medical school and then i married i got married out there and my father-in-law said listen we live in elkhorn nebraska we need a family doctor the last place in the world I ever wanted to practice medicine was Elkhorn, Nebraska. And so I said to her, I said, listen, we've been married for one year. I hate to disappoint you, but I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've got to go back. I've got to go back to Connecticut. She came with me for 22 years. And then she went back to Elkhorn, Nebraska. Okay. Well, and, she, and I stayed here. She gave it a try. She yeah. gave it a shot. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so, so your practice, your pra family you're in Connecticut, you practice. I practiced medicine for 35 years in my hometown okay. of Trumbull, Connecticut. And it was an interesting thing because basically I was treating people that I knew my whole life. Half of them paid, half of them didn't pay. No problem. Most of them were my relatives. Yeah. And uh, it got into a situation where I we had a lot of farms up in the north of, of Trumbull back then. When I was a kid, we only had 2,000 people in town. Today, it's 50,000. Yeah. Um, I got acquainted with some of the old-timer, old farmers that were family family friends, <clears throat> and it was the beginning of, of the reverse mortgage deals. Oh, yeah. Because what would happen, <clears throat> they would come to me and say, look, Doc, 
we're we're in our eighties. Uh, we're we're getting we're sickly. You you're you're taking care of us. <clears throat> we really don't want to go anyplace else. Is there any way that you can let us borrow some money or or buy our buy our farm, give us life use, let us stay here until we die? And I thought that was their idea. It wasn't my idea. And it was basically a reverse mortgage deal. Huh? I would buy their property. I would buy their farm. They stayed there until they died. I took care of them. I paid all their bills. And and when they died, I would sell the farm. Yeah. The, their families were perfectly happy with the situation. They got the cash and they didn't have to worry about all the probing and all the other stuff. And that's how it started. So I got into that for a while. <clears throat> and that's how I got money to be able to buy property out here. Huh. And so then after 35 years of family practice, I was only 62 then because um, <clears throat> I started out very early. I, I did have a little bit of an interruption in my in my uh, medical practice. I got drafted as a medical doctor in 1967 to Vietnam because at that time it was the Tet Offensive. They needed doctors more than anything else, and they went after every doctor that was a family doctor that wasn't too tied into the hospitals. So they drafted me right out of my office. How, how long did you serve over there? One year in Vietnam as a combat surgeon. And then one year back in the United States because you got drafted for two years. But they admitted after my one year in Vietnam, they didn't need me anymore. But I had to serve out the second year before I could go into practice. They let me go to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, and they let me go home during the week because being a doctor up there where they had doctors that were waiting, pending to go to Vietnam, deathly afraid that they were going to go to Vietnam. I came over there. It was going to make somebody go to Vietnam. So he says, do whatever you want to do. Go golfing, come and get, get your check on the weekends, work the weekends for us, but you can do whatever you want for the, for the next year. I, I, went, I went golfing the next day and I got called in by the military police. What are you doing on the golf course? Everybody else is working. <laughs> I said, they told me to come down here. And we had to go back to the adjutant general. Anyway, it worked out. <clears throat> I started to go back and forth home, and I was able to get my practice started again. But it, I took a hit for that one year. Yeah. yeah. I, people came to me as a new doctor. All of a sudden, I wasn't there anymore. And other than that, I have to say one thing. As a physician in Vietnam, I probably got more experience within that one year than I would get for the next 10 years. And plus an attitude, which yeah, I never yeah. had before. Uh, yeah. ha, ha, that's where it came from. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was an M16 and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an Uzi attitude that I that I was allowed to was not allowed to carry because I was a non-combatant. I was given a little simple 45, and meanwhile we would get raided at night. I had nothing to protect myself. My one of my sergeants said, "Listen, Cap, I was a captain." Go down to the black market in Saigon. We'll get we'll get you some we'll get you some weapons. I had every kind of a weapon you could imagine. <laughs> I bought it on the black market. That's how I protected myself. If you say, did you use it? Oh yeah, wow, yeah, I did use it. Yeah, because you were right there on the front lines. Right, I guess, we would get we would get raided. I would say, I'm not going to be sitting here when there's when there's there's the Viet Cong running all through the camp, and I have nothing to protect myself. And so um, I don't have to go into any detail about the whole situation, but. I was able to get an attitude, don't bother me for the rest of my life, yeah. I'm telling you. I could see where that could harden you up pretty quickly. Well, it was tough being married, Yeah, because that's why uh, I'm on my third wife. However, uh, I've been with her for 25 years. So, but you see, 
going to Vietnam, and I feel very badly about not just the Vietnam, but all these guys that have gone off to Iraq, that have gone off to Afghanistan. The one of the worst things is for your is the family life because when you come back, now I don't think most of them spent a year in Afghanistan. I don't think most of them spent a year in uh, in some of these other places. But in Vietnam, it was three hundred and sixty five days. That's what your tour was. And when you came back home, I was only married when I left for a year. Well, try to get back into a relationship after you've been married for a year, and then you don't see her for a year. It, it took 22 years. And you years. go through some shit during that yeah, year, yeah, you know? Yeah. It was yeah. 22 years I was married. And and it was never just quite, not to mention that, that I worked 24 hours a day. But that's basically what my life was about. Wow. So coming out to Block Island, after all of this stuff, uh, where you got peace and quiet, and I'm on Beacon Hill Road. I mean, I might as well be in the outback of Australia. If I see two cars go by, and it's usually Jack Savoy. Other than that, and in and, and, and Russell Littlefield, I don't see anybody all day long. Yeah, yeah. up on Beacon Hill Road in yeah. January, February. Yeah, yeah. It's so all that. Oh I had somebody the other day. I was driving over Old Mill, and here we are in January, and they, you know, have to curtail their dog and everything. And as I go by, she goes boy, this road's really busy. And I, I thought I'd say, yeah, I remember when I used to drive across it and wouldn't see a single person, you know, and now you pass everybody, you know, it's changed so much. So you were basically like a MASH doctor, like in like in the movie and the television show MASH. Well, yeah, no? MASH was basically- I know that was the Korean War, technically. But. It was supposed to be the Korean War, but right. it was designed at the Vietnam War. Right. Basically, that's what it was designed about. Yeah. They tried to make it look like the Korean War because mm -hmm. the Vietnam War wasn't very favorable. Right. And it turned out to be that that MASH situation was, well, I wasn't even, I mean, that was that was completely different than what I had because I wasn't, <clears throat> uh, we, by the time we had Quonset, so we had nice hospitals. Oh, okay. But they, they were supposed to only let me spend uh, six months in the field with an infantry unit, and then you were supposed to be able to go back to a hospital because it was too dangerous being in the field. I went back to the hospital for like two weeks. I said, "Let me out of here." You know, I I had I had everybody pouring rank on me, including nurses that were major generals. They were they were colonels and full board colonels. I was a captain, and and uh, and I said to myself, you know. And then as a family physician, I wound up in this in surgery, which I really didn't want to be a surgeon. That's what I had to do. So I was able to get out of there. And they said, listen, you want to go back to the, I says, I'll take my chances with the infantry. Wow. So I wound up with the, with the 1st Cavalry. I wound up with the 4th Infantry Division. <clears throat> Where were you stationed? Out of curiosity. I was stationed in Pleiku, Vietnam. Okay. Pleiku is in the Highlands. It was different than any place else. That's where I started out. I wound up in Da Nang because I would be transferred wherever there was a battle. Yep. And so I would just get myself together. I had a little, they would give me a tent. And if you say, was it like MASH? No, MASH was far superior than what I had to deal with. We had a tent. We had an aid station. We would bring the wounded in <clears throat> to the aid station. And then from there, you would helicopter them out, do what you could to stabilize everybody, yeah. like the EMS would do today, yeah. and, and, and try to get, we didn't have any blood, but we try to get fluids going and stuff like that, and then ship them out. We always had a hospital ship offshore about 15 miles off so that we could send people, uh, our wounded, off to the hospital ships. Yeah. And uh, so basically I would I would be working for a week or two during the, during the peak of the battles. The rest of the time, we just wandered around uh, 
doing what they called medcap, where you would go into the mountains and you would you would treat the indigent population, which would basically were like an Indian population. However, if I knew what that was all about, I wouldn't have done it because basically what that was <clears throat> PR. was to get information uh, from these these mountain yard people about what the Viet Cong were doing really? in the area, and they were using they were using me as a scapegoat for a reason right. to treat them. Now, I did see things that I never saw before other than a textbook, tuberculosis and 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 stuff well which we're, we would see once in a while but but the leprosy and and different types of uh, a pastorella which is a which is a, we call it rabbit feeler but they call it rat fever over there <clears throat> because of the rat population. These were things that were already eradicated mostly here in the United States. Right. And we all had we all had vaccinations, yeah, yeah. but out there you would you would see what what life was like a thousand years ago, and it hasn't changed. It was just like our American Indians. What well, what happened after we would leave there, and we would bring them shovels, and we would bring them things. The Viet Cong would come back and find out that they were fraternizing with us, and they would wipe them out. And so it turned out to be a, a, a real genocide. And I said to myself, I want no part of this anymore because that's what's happening. Now, I have slides of all of this, but that was one of my regrets is that they, they used me uh, to, as, as a medical prompt to get information from them. Yep. And, then, and then they would pay the consequences because they wouldn't protect them afterward. Wow. Right. They, you you but, helped them get their agenda. Right. Now, did that change the way, like, your your feelings about the military and the, the complex itself? Or did you go in with, you know... Uh, no, I, I've always been... Um, well, I've been a military man. Basically, I've always been a military man. I've always been a very strict law and order man. I would support the police no matter what happens. Uh, and, and the military. But they all... I, let me put it this way. Uh, <clears throat> I never, I never ran away from anything, but I did have to walk away a few times. Yeah, and and that's basically no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter how much you applaud something, there's going to be a bad element, just like we see in the news last night. And and so what what happened here was that uh, you, you, that war 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 is terrible. War is absolutely terrible, <clears throat> and unless you're there yourself, you cannot realize what war is. Nobody can really realize what war is really like. And uh, today, uh, most many of our of our troops come back with with uh, psychic problems. There's no question about that. Well, World War II, they all had psychic problems, but nobody said anything about it. No, they just call, they called it shell shocked. You they, were shell shocked. They came back home and lived the lived the best life that they could, and yeah. didn't, didn't look back at it at all. Yeah. And I have to say that uh, for if, if, for me, basically, <clears throat> as as a non combatant. I was not supposed to be out there involved with with conflict, but I was. I was in the middle of it. Hmm. And uh, wonder it would be really strange. But my dad was in Vietnam. He was a Marine. Got shot. Be amazing if you treated him. You know. Well, well you yeah. said earlier, Crazy. first air. My dad was first at air cav in Viet. Well, he was stationed in Weijambu in Korea, but that's why I asked where you were. Well, first cav was in Korea afterward. Uh, First calf had all the helicopters. Yeah, it, it, it was called the cavalry, but they didn't have horses anymore. Right, they had yeah. helicopters, so uh, I became basically um, I, I was in a helicopter every day, and I wasn't supposed to be because it was a, it was a dangerous place to be. 
I was supposed to be in that cracker box with the big red cross on the side, uh, the old Dodge, six-cylinder Dodge riding up and down convoys. Looks like a bread they, truck. <laughs> what they would be raided on every time they got, they got fired on, they said, I'm not going to do this. After three or four convoys, well, we, got, we got raided from both sides. I said, I'm not going to do this. I sat in back of, a, uh, back of my, 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 actually it was, it was, it was an ambulance, uh, back of that Red Cross. They'd fire at the Red Cross. Yeah. So after that, I said, listen, I have to, I'm going to go in a helicopter from now on. It was much safer. And so I would be in a helicopter, and I got, I had, <clears throat> wherever I went, I had two helicopters and two pilots or more uh, that we we all would travel together. They were they were evacuation helicopters, yeah. medevacs, and I got to learn how to fly a helicopter, and they got to learn how to start an IV, <laughs> and we would we would share off. And, uh, <clears throat> And so my year, hey Bobby, you want to trade spots hey. today? <laughs> yeah. My year in Vietnam, I I can't say it was bad. It, it was good because I did what I was supposed to do, and I probably came away a lot better because of it. Yeah, uh, which is not the case with most people. No, no, yeah. we, we've had a guest on who yeah. been through military service, and yeah. we yeah. talked a little bit about how difficult it can be. My dad won't doesn't he. He'll talk a little bit here and there, but still to this yeah. day, doesn't like to talk about it. Uh, now, if your dad, your dad was in the Marines, probably was a little, probably 65, 66. I don't even really know the exact yeah. dates. Well, that's when the Marines came first in Vietnam. I'm going to say you're about there. He said he was stationed most of his time was on an aircraft carrier and would just get called in when things well, be, were not Because good. they were part of the Navy, really, right? The Marines, they I don't like so. to say that. They don't, they don't want to say um, that. Sorry, but Dad. They, but they basically are a part of the Navy somehow. And <clears throat> but I had a Marine. I had a um, I had a, uh, a Marine uh, station near nearby where I was. But they had their own doctors. They had their own uh, camps. They had everything separate from the Army. Okay. And once in a while, we would have to go to their hospital. Sometimes they would come to ours. But they had a, a different setup than we did. So I didn't mix with the Marines very much. Unlikely that I would ever have treated your father over there, or see, or even yep. came close to him. <clears throat> but. Uh, uh, and then, uh, then we would fly out to uh, uh, to a, uh, a hospital ship, <clears throat> and I'd be covered with mud. <clears throat> and we would bring in some patients, and they they would invite us for lunch. Now here we go. I'm walking around in mud. All of a sudden, I'm on a, I'm in a hospital ship, sitting for lunch with with Filipino waiters coming over with starched uniforms on, <laughs> and and I'm with I'm in mud, and they were just fascinated to see a guy like me. I was with the other doctors, actually. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the officers always stayed together. If you were you in the military at all, I was not. No. Well, officers stayed together in, in enlisted men. Never mixed together too much, except <laughs> except in Vietnam, where I was the officer and I had I had six corpsmen and two airline or two helicopter pilots. So basically, it was an experience that I that uh, probably I can cherish to some extent. <clears throat> and then, other than that. To now be in Block Island for the past, well, I'm retired now, living here full time uh, for 22 years in peace and quiet. Yeah. And it's a completely different life than I had lived for the previous years. I mean, and it sounds like you'll never never, uh, take Block Island for granted because I'm sure in some part of that experience, having been in Vietnam and been in in that one year of of chaos and yeah. craziness and, and there's nothing here on block island <clears throat> nothing that's going to bother me yeah. nothing about yeah. block island is going to ever bother me but there's some things that i don't like that that happens well here. let's talk about that what what don't you like I got a <laughs> if you want to hear it <laughs> i'll tell you a question <laughs> is there any validity to this story so the first house you talked about that you bought closed bought, in six days right um 
did you is that where you tried to grow the did you grow a vineyard there grapevines i had a vineyard there yes for 15 years did they try to raid you because they thought they were pot plants that's a different story oh all right <laughs> <laughs> i'm close all right so I, bring sta- it I started out with uh 500 plants on the west side and but, we now we're talking grapes we're talking grapes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just grapes on, on West Side Road. And if you remember, you could see them. The whole field, the whole backyard was all grapes. We made wine. <clears throat> Not the best wine. But now, was this you and El- uh, Elliot Taubman and Leo Leone? No, I had nothing to That's, do with them. Okay, no, okay, they, okay, okay. They're they in their own, they had their own world. I, I was separate from them. Uh, but then <clears throat> I bought... Um, like every man today, wants a man cave. All right, I had the West Side house, and my wife would, well, like I said before, it was very. It's very difficult to find a woman that can live here in January, February, March. Uh, that's why I had to get my wife a house in Newport. I wanted to get a house in Narragansett. I said, listen, get a little condo over in Narragansett so we have a place to go. If we have to go to the hospital, we don't have to go. You can't get the ferry boat back. We don't have to wind up at the at the, uh, at the at the hotel that's going to give us the Block Island discount. We don't have to go through all that nonsense. Let's just get a So she goes, okay. So she came back. She said, I found a place. Where? In Newport. Newport. I thought you were going to go Narragansett. Yeah, I didn't want to go there. I'd rather be in Newport if I'm going to have to live over there. I said, all right, where, where about this? She says, I'm, I'm Bellevue. Bellevue, <clears throat> that's where all the mansions are. Well, this is an old mansion that, uh, <laughs> that uh, I got a condo in, and it's this four condos in this big old mansion. I said, well, I was thinking like about, you know, we were talking about 200, 300,000 for a little place over in Narragansett. That was, that was going back a ways. And she goes, no, no, a little more than that, you know, more than, a lot more than that. <laughs> anyway, she's happy. She spends uh, most, she spend the week here and then two or three days in Newport. Summertime, all summer here. Wintertime, a little more time in Newport. Yeah. Works out well. I think most everybody out here that's been living here permanently for a while will have probably a place to go on the, on the mainland. Yes. And, uh, and so and so now do you still do you have a spot on the mainland still anywhere in Newport? Oh, you oh, still have the place. place. Oh, I have the well, yeah. Are you kidding? She's never leaving that place under <laughs> any circumstances. Oh no, she's got that. We've had that for for a while now. Oh, that's no, cool. That's, yeah. So and do so, you get over there much and hang out or uh my family were farmers. My grandfather was a farmer. When I was I was born in nineteen forty. I'm eighty two years old. I was born in nineteen forty. When I was born Mother and my mother and my father both worked, so I was taken care of by my my grandmother until I was four or five years old. Till the war was over, so I remember <clears throat> I remember milking the cows and feeding the horses and feeding the chickens and picking berries and 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 separating the cream and the milk and all. That's what as a child. That's what that's what I lived with. Um, and then <clears throat> coming uh, coming out here and then being with my uncle out there in Nebraska and and, and the Iowa cornfields, I. I wanted to have a farm. So that's why I took a walk one day and Andy Transu was selling his property on Beacon Hill Road. And he was putting up a sign for sale by owner. And it was another deal. I said, oh, Andy, he says, yeah, he says, I got, I got extra property. I'm just, I want to keep three or four acres myself. I'm going to sell the other four or five acres off. And uh, so he put up a sign and uh, well, within, within a month I bought it. And I bought it the same way I bought the first piece of property. <clears throat> Andy said, well, we can make a deal if you can have, we can have a fast deal. Yeah, we can have a fast deal. So I bought it with the idea that I'd build a little K-1 
cabin down in the woods and be able to hide down in there someplace. I had the big house on the west side. Well, that turned out to be a, a bigger house. Well, uh, start out with the, with the barn. Back then, you could put the barn up before you built a house. Now yeah, you can't. Yeah. No, no, you, you can't, can't do, do anything on your property until you no. have a main a, right. a residence yeah. on it. Yeah. I built a I built the barn, and the 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 zoning board says yes, you could you could build this if you build it on the old foundation. There's an old foundation in there of a barn. We'll let you build on the existing foundation, which I did. That barn was built in 1820. It came down in in the hurricane of of 1938, according yep. to Willis Dodge and some of the old timers that can remember back back then. And in Merrill Slate, and uh, and so I did. I did build a house on that foundation, and uh, I built a barn on that foundation, and, and and then I started to clear the property, and I saw this gentleman sitting on stone wall fence with a big beard, and a piece of grass in his mouth, and he says, "Hey, Doc," he said, "What what are you doing out there cutting all that cutting all that grass?" I said, "Well, I just mowed. I went to look halfway decent. I just had the barn." He said, "I got horses that I could bring down here that would take care of that for you, Rick Batchelder." Yeah, I was gonna. I was my guess. Yeah. Yep. Rick Batchelder, and so he brought down three Belgian horses that were three or four years old. I had them for ten years, and actually, him and Chris Hobie brought those horses from from Pennsylvania, someplace down there, from the Amish, brought them up here. That's how it started out, and then I built the house up and back. And my wife says, "Gee, my kids would love to have horses." So then we moved from the west side to the farm. And they rode their horses. Now, if you have daughters, they love horses for a couple of years. So everybody <laughs> rode. Everybody rode the horses. They shoveled out the farm. <clears throat> they fed the horses. They cleaned the stables for about three or four years, and then it all stopped. <laughs> then I shoveled the manure. Then I fed the horses. And I, that was after Rick sold all his horses and left. And so basically, I became a farmer. Wow. And uh, and so what do you ha- what do you, what do you have for animals on the farm now? Well. I have, I, I have two horses. Uh, they're getting old. I've had them for twenty years, so they're both about thirty years old. I have uh, three goats. Uh, they're thirteen years old, and they have a life expectancy of ten to twelve. But keep in mind, if you have horses that are not stabled, that are able to get out of get in and out of a of a shelter, whatever they want, and can graze every day. They will live five or six years longer than a stabled horse. Really? No stress. So I had a horse that died at 40 years old on Beacon Hill. Wow. That's, that's a long time because there's no stress. They feel much better. They can do whatever they want. But don't put a door on the stable or they'll kick it right down. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, th- so I've got three goats <laughs> that are 13 years old and that they're maxed out. They're limping around. They get a little arthritis. I have I have sick call in the morning. Uh, Piggy boy gets a, he gets a little anti-inflammatory pill uh, for his shoulder. And I I have I have to be a veterinarian basically because there's no veterinarian out here. No. Uh, although I will say that uh, that once in a while one one will come by and and they usually stop in if they see if I need anything. They're very good. Uh, then I have uh, I have ten cats. Now the cat situation is what it is because I was infested with rats. If you have chickens and if you have animals uh, where you have to feed corn, the rats will infest your farm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The buffet. I I had rats everywhere. So it it attracted the the feral cats in the area. So I have four or five of them coming around. They would come around, and they would kill a rat once in a while. And I'd say, bring your friends back and do come on. (laughs) 
I started putting some tuna fish out for them. And they would come and they eat the tuna fish. And then they brought some more. And finally, I wound up with like about 10 cats. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, I had no rats, no more rats. They, would, they killed every rat in sight. However, I started having baby kittens all over the place. Oh, wow. I had a sign outside. Please take something home from Block Island renters. Take a baby kitten. And they would. I got rid of more baby kittens every summer from renters that would come and take a, a, a Black Island cat home with them. That's a good souvenir. Yeah. yeah. It was a good deal. And and but eventually a lovely lady uh, from the Newport New uh, from the Rhode Island uh, neutering association uh, came over and she said, you know, we're looking for an area where for feral cats, I'm not sure that they had a federal grant or whatever to get feral cats and to sterilize them. But they they captured my cats, all 10 of them, shipped them off, had them all neutered and spaded, male and female, took a clip off of their ear so you could tell if they were neutered. They have a little piece off their ear and sent them back to me and they became pets. Now, I have no rats. I have I have pet feral cats. I have to pick up at least six of them every day and pet them and talk to them. And they want to purr. They be, I don't care how crazy they were. You can train. Most of the cats will become as, as affectionate as any animal you ever see, other than the donkeys. Okay. Donkeys are very affectionate. So I have 10 cats, three goats, two horses. I had two dogs, but I've had huskies for 40 years. And the last husky my daughter took back because she's starting to get a little problem with her legs. My daughter took it. was her dog to begin with. She has her back over in Newport. And so I have no dogs right now. And I don't want to, I run. Do you have a dog? Yeah. You do? Yeah. There, come, there come a point where you're still a young guy. You get older and dogs, you got to take them out. They get old and then they, putting a dog down is one of the hardest things anybody yes, can do. Yes, yeah. It's the worst thing. Yeah. Ever. And so uh, I decided that we have enough animals. I don't need any more dogs. But I have 30 chickens. 20 ducks, and it cost me about $15,000 a year to feed everybody. <laughs> wow. No, no listen, I don't, belong, I don't belong to a country club. Uh, I don't belong to a yacht club. Sounds good. Right. You know, you know what, it costs, yeah. what it costs to belong to a country club today? I would have no idea. 20, 30, 40 grand just to join? Yeah, if you over know. over here, they won't even. They won't even. Uh, yeah, even don't, con, yeah. They don't consider people like no. Rich and I. They don't let us. We join. are allowed to kill rats and feed <laughs> donkeys, though. Yeah, so. they let us do that. So, so I have, I have a, a risk. I, I got, well, the cats are rescued. Uh, the horses have been rescued. I got them originally from uh, 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 um, Timmy McCabe, um, and then I've got. Uh, let's see. There was a lady out here that was raising Albi. Uh, uh, let's see, the, the white horses. She's the um, I forget the name of it right, but anyway, she she left and Heather Heather Stiffen called me and she says I can get a horse for free. This is 15, 18 years oh, ago. Princess, yeah. that was her horse. Princess, princess. Yeah, yeah. that's her horse. Yeah, Arabians. She's Arabian yep. horses. And <clears throat> so she said I don't have a place to keep it, but I get a. I'll help you with the farm if you let me bring the horse down. We went and got the horse. It had icicles hanging off its nose. No. It uh, it was it had frozen water. We brought the horse down, and she's had that horse is still there, and and so uh, I, I've been able to pick up animals along the way. But there, if you're going to have a rescue farm, there's got to be a limit. You can't take right. every yeah. animal to work. Yeah, yeah. Then you end up in the same boat that they were in in the first place. Too right. many animals, not right. enough time to take care of them properly. It, you want to you want to take as many animals that you can care for. 
Yeah. If it comes too much for you, then then you don't want to do it anymore. So I have. And but then once you do that, once you start a little rescue farm, you're stuck with those animals until they die. And that's okay. Well, that was my trick. So you asked if I had a dog. So we our dog we went through losing the dog, putting down. We we did the no dog lifestyle for a little while, and then we got a dog, and it's this adorable little poodle. And I'm pretty sure he's going to outlive me. <laughs> so it's going to be the reverse. He's going to have to see me get put down. Well, hey, give us one minute because we're going to take a little quick break so we can listen to our sponsors. That's how we ahead. get this podcast. So uh, we'll be back in just one minute with more Doc Willis. Hey, Rich, guess who I'm dressed as? Uh, let's see. You got crown, beard, trident. Are you a professional wrestler? No, I'm King Neptune, duh. Oh, sorry. King Neptune. Oh, you know what? The Neptune, that reminds me, I got some family coming out and they're going to stay up at the Neptune house. Oh, yeah. I love that place. They've got 23 modern condo style units, right? Yeah. What's great is they've all got full kitchens with full size refrigerators. You know, maybe you don't want to eat out every night. You want to, you know, make something at home or maybe you caught some fresh fish that day and you want to cook it on your own. Right. You know what else? They've got great views and a heated pool. Tennis courts, gas grills, picnic tables. They've even got a game room with a pool table for the kiddies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got everything you need to, to stay there and enjoy a great visit on Block Island. Sammy and the staff, they're always on hand. If you need anything, they're, they're right there for you. Sammy is so sweet and so nice. And you know what? The staff's great. And the best part is the location is awesome. You're tucked away from the hustle and bustle of downtown, but you're still a short walk to everything. The beaches, uh, restaurants, you name it. Yeah, I don't think there could be a better location. And, you know, they fill up quick in the summer, but the shoulder season is a great time to visit them as well. They they rent the spring and fall. Uh, check their website, uh, NeptuneHouse.com. Hey, Rich, do these bell bottoms make me look fat? Bell bottom. Oh, wait. It must be Monday, and you're going to disco night at Captain Nick's. Well, yeah, of course I'm going to disco night at Captain Nick's. I'm the DJ, man. I got to be there. <laughs> that place is so much fun. So much fun. And the fun doesn't end after Monday, because on Tuesday and Wednesdays, we have dueling pianos, followed by Dr. Wes Chesterson's sloppy seconds. What are sloppy seconds? Well, that's when I play the piano for the rest of the drunk people there at the end of the night. Well, that sounds fun in itself. And Thursdays, they've got live acoustic acts and full bands and DJs. Yeah. And Friday and Saturday afternoons, we have acoustic acts on the deck at 530. Uh, Fridays are Delaney, and then Saturdays are Buddy Rob Davis. And then Friday and Saturday nights, they've got the best live bands on Block Island, like Derek and the Fun Bags, The Blushing Brides, Fever, Neil and the Vipers, West End Blend, and the High and Mighty Brass Band, just to name a few. Yeah, and uh, the bands aren't over just because Friday and Saturday night ends. On Sunday afternoons, the Young Guns take the stage on the deck at 530. Sunday fun day, and what if you're hungry? They got food. Food, right? Yeah, for sure. All right. So they've serving food out of the Captain Galley seven days a week, including some late night grub. So, you know, if you're hungry, stop in late night and grab a bite. Yeah. And if you want to check out the full entertainment schedule, let's just head over to CaptainNicksBI.com. Hey, Rich, I feel like I need some exercise. Let's go run the Block Island Triathlon. Um, I'm more into low impact. How about a gentle paddle? Oh, sure. Well, we could go explore the Great Salt Pond on a kayak or paddleboard from Ford Island Kayaks. Yeah, they and you know they have the Hobie pedal boards, too. You ever try one of those out? It's like a bike on water. I've heard about that. They've also got the Peekaboo Glass Bottom Kayak. 
Yeah, and you can rent all their stuff by the hour, or half day, full day, or even a whole week. If you're going to stay for a week, you can reserve a, a kayak for a week. Yeah, but you know what? You might want to make a reservation if your group is six or more. That's a hot tip for you. Well, that's a good tip. I like it. So uh, basically, you go explore the Great Salt Pond. It's got hidden coves. There's the oyster farms out there, the marinas. Andy's Way is great, you know? Yeah, it's super cool. And it's operated by, and it's located adjacent to our friends at the BI Fishworks oh, place. Nice. All right. Well, you can hear everything we just talked about and more if you go to the bifishworks.com or you can give them a call at 401-466-5392 you know what my favorite thing to do on a paddleboard is what's that i like to bring a sandwich with me and paddle out to andy's way and just kind of camp out there and eat my sandwich it's like finding your own private spot i just try to not get sand in my sandwich well better in your sandwich than your shorts that's my motto yeah good point you know, I was thinking of going out to dinner tonight, but I changed my mind and I'm cooking at home after opening the B.I. Times and seeing the latest recipe from Pam Gelsomini and Dish Off the Block. Oh, yeah. I love that column. But you know what? I found out Dish Off the Block isn't only in the Block Island Times. She's got a whole blog at dishofftheblock.com. There you can purchase Pam's new line of Dish Off the Block spices, including Superbly Herbly, Chow Bella, and Raging Cajun. Yeah. Not only that, tons of recipes like that Superbly Herbly Striped Bass, uh, Apricot Ginger Sticky ribs over shiitake and leek fried rice. Uh, she's got mussels and chorizo parmesan cream sauce. I mean, those are just a couple of them. Yeah, and you know what? I've also seen that she has a cookbook out called What Can I Make With This Frickin' Chicken? And it's got 50 tried and true recipes using ingredients commonly found in any kitchen, really. Yeah, and those meals, I've made a few of them. They are worthy of a five-star restaurant. They really are. They're very easy. They're approachable. You know, if you're just a novice chef, sometimes, you know, you get scared away by these big, fancy recipes. Not here. Anyone can make these, and that's what's so cool about them. Yeah, check her out. Check out Pam, all her stuff. You go to dishofftheblock.com. You can read the blog. You can shop the spice rack. You can purchase a cookbook or just find something great to make for dinner tonight. Ooh, now I'm getting hungry. I'm always hungry. <laughs> Well, as you can all tell, we had a lot to talk about with Doc Willis, so much, in fact, that we didn't get through it all in one episode. So, even though we weren't planning on it, this has become a two-part episode. Uh, So what we're going to do is let you off right here and pick it right back up in the next episode for more scintillating conversation with Block Island's own Doc Willis. Don't forget, you can email us at twoguysonbi at gmail.com, and don't forget to follow us on all the socials. Click the subscribe button. And while we have you, don't forget to pick up a copy of the Block Island Guide. Whether you're a first-time visitor to Block Island or you're a local, the Block Island Guide is full of great information that will teach you everything you need to know about Block Island. All right, guys. See you in a couple weeks. What shall we do with the drunken sailor? What shall we do with the drunken sailor? We're dying